When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. In today's episode, I want to feature Becky's Faith and Fitness. Becky's Faith and Fitness is actually my wife's fitness community on Facebook. And after all these months of being sponsored by Shanti Fitness and so many of you have picked up Sean's workouts and have emailed and tweeted me telling me about how you're ready to make a change in your life and hearing Sean on this program has motivated you to get started with one of his workouts. Well, for any of you that like to work out or that are currently starting a workout program or looking to start a workout program, I wanted to take this minute to recommend to you to go onto Facebook and like Becky's page, Becky's Faith and Fitness. There's no charge for doing this. It's free. It's just a large group of many people that are doing workouts. Becky does challenge groups on there. She talks about nutrition. Other users share their stories and tips. It's a great way to stay accountable and stay motivated as you move forward with your fitness journey. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to Becky's Faith and Fitness on Facebook. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and in today's episode, we're going to take some time to evaluate, analyze, and try to engage some critical thinking in regards to Jay Wilds. I've mentioned in the last couple of episodes that Jay is the most confusing part of this case. Like I said, he's the anomaly. We have piles and piles of evidence and witness statements and trial testimonies, and then we have the backbone of the prosecution's case... Jay Wilde's testimony. But the problem is that Jay's testimony doesn't match most of the other evidence. In the things where he does match them, for example, the 1999 perceived concept of how the cell phone data worked, in that regard, Jay's testimony does seem to match the cell phone data, but we know it's on record that Jay's story changed as he was presented with the cell phone data. Ritz and McGillivary testified that the cell phone records helped Jay, quote, refresh his memory when he was presented with the cell records. So to say that Jay's testimony is corroborated by the cell records is just simply not true. Jay's story, based on what Jay says about it and what the detectives say about it, Jay's story was created to fit the cell phone records after he had seen them. And people have different theories on that as to whether Jay was coerced or if he was simply lying to cover up his own involvement. There are several theories out there, but the bottom line is we do know that that testimony and that narrative was generated in response to seeing those cell records. So it's not corroborated by those cell records, not by any stretch of the imagination. So we're going to get to our analysis of Jay after we do a quick breakdown of Undisclosed last episode, Tina. The Tina episode of Undisclosed was, I think, one of the most interesting episodes that they've produced. Now, that's not to minimize all the other episodes where they brought out all this factual data and evidence and all that that really has huge bearing on the case and has made a huge difference in the case. But it was just very interesting to walk through the life of Christina Gutierrez. 
And after listening to the episode a couple of times, it's clear to see the downfall of Christina Gutierrez's career and her performance in the courtroom. Without rehashing all of the details that were brought out in that episode, the basics of Gutierrez's life were this. She was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She pulled herself up by her bootstraps and by her own accord and against all odds, fought her way into the position of not only being a lawyer, but being a lawyer that was well known for being tenacious and had a great track record. For years, Christina Gutierrez was a widely respected attorney and most certainly a sought-after defense attorney. She had a reputation for being a scrapper in the courtroom and fighting tooth and nail for her clients. But it seems like in about 1995, Gutierrez started falling apart. For the last five or so years of her career, she was embezzling money from clients. She was taking money for work that she would later never perform. She was basically just leaving her clients hung out to dry. The year that she was representing Adnan appears to be the worst year of her career. And we all know that she was later disbarred, and shortly after that, she passed away. But during that time between 1990 and 2000, something was going on with Gutierrez. We know that she had MS and diabetes. However, at that point, the MS had not been diagnosed. But from the records that we have access to, it seems painfully obvious that Gutierrez was in severe financial trouble. Or at least she had a desperate need for money for something, and we don't know what that was. She was representing a record number of clients who had been charged with murder during the time when she was representing Adnan. Some of these clients were out of the area and even as far away as Puerto Rico. To say that Gutierrez had too many irons in the fire is an understatement of extreme magnitude. There's just no way even a great lawyer on top of their game can represent 9 or 10 murder clients simultaneously, especially when you consider the locality of the different clients. The bottom line is, Adnan did not get the quality of representation that he paid for. Many of the tasks in Adnan's case that should have been completed by an attorney were delegated to law students, some first and second year law students. We know that on at least one occasion she had confused Adnan's case with one of her other clients. She was clearly not prepared when she went into the courtroom. Adnan's first trial ended in a mistrial because Gutierrez claims that she had received important evidence prior to the trial and hadn't even taken the time to read it. Now, either she was lying and she had actually read it, or she's telling the truth and she had it and chose not to read it. Neither one of those two options are acceptable. She called no experts in the trial. She never challenged the science of the cell phone evidence, even though it was the first case in Maryland where it had ever been used. And when you listen to the clips of her working at the trial, it's almost impossible to even follow her train of logic half the time. Her speech and her questioning were confusing. We heard a clip on Undisclosed of Jen Pusateri on the stand saying that she has no idea what Gutierrez even asked her. And we could go on and on for hours about the failings of Gutierrez at that trial. But like I said, the bottom line is she did a terrible job. And not just Adnan, but any defendant on trial for anything deserves at least to have an effective defense attorney, especially when they paid large sums of money for that attorney to defend them. And Adnan did not get that. So why was that episode so interesting to me? Well, what I've been trying to do over the past several weeks is to try to back away from all this paperwork in the case that we've all looked over a thousand times and try to analyze the practical behavior of everyone involved in this case. Try to paint a better picture of what was happening. And that's no easy task when we're talking about a court case that happened 16 years ago. But sometimes we can get so caught up and focused on all this paperwork 
that we missed the forest for the trees. And having a better understanding of what was going on with Gutierrez during the time of the trial helps us to paint a better picture of what was happening back then. And the timing of this episode couldn't have been better. As I was listening to the audio tapes of Jay Wilde's police interviews and reading all the notes and reading the trial transcripts, I couldn't understand how this could possibly have been sold to a jury. I have to hand it to Yurik and Murphy. They took what was a nightmare of a case. If you look at the facts of the case and forget for a moment the fact that a jury convicted it not, to use that as an argument of guilt when we're discussing an old case like this is simply useless. In order to make the point that Adnan is guilty because a jury convicted him, you would have to then also believe that there has never been a false conviction in this country. The fact is that juries do get it wrong many, many times. But when you look through the transcripts and you see the case that the state presented, it was a nightmare. It didn't work. Nothing worked. Nothing added up. And I'll get into that in a moment. As I'm reading through these things, I just keep thinking, how did Gutierrez let this slide? This would have been so easy to impeach this witness. It would have been so easy to contradict this testimony. Whether or not you believe that Adnan Syed is guilty, there is no way that the prosecution should have been able to pull off this conviction. Any halfway decent defense attorney should have easily been able to dismantle the state's case. But page after page after page of the transcripts, you see missed opportunity after missed opportunity for Christina Gutierrez. I believe very strongly that Adnan was convicted mostly based, if not nearly entirely based, on the prosecution's closing statements. Yurik and Murphy told the jury some flat-out lies. They misrepresented testimony, things that the jury had heard days and weeks before. It was sleight of hand, but that's where it happened. And I'm not even saying that that was uncommon or that Yurik and Murphy were evil for doing so. I certainly disagree with the ethics involved. But I also know that this happens every day in court. Lawyers and prosecutors spin. That's what they do. And what makes a really good attorney is someone that can take the evidence and spin it into a narrative that the jury can relate to, that they can understand, and they can believe. And the state did a great job of that. However, Adnan was working at a massive disadvantage because his attorney let it happen and didn't refute some of these obvious false facts. Whether Adnan was factually innocent or guilty is certainly still a hot debate, but obtaining an acquittal in that trial should have been a slam dunk for Christina Gutierrez, and instead it was a swing and a miss. And I'll explain why after a quick break to hear about our sponsor. Jay Wilds the crux of the state's case against Adnan. Jay is the man that told the police, and later testified in court, that on the afternoon of January 13, 1999, Adnan Syed planned and carried out the murder of Heyman Lee, and that after the fact, he helped Adnan transport and bury the body, dispose of evidence, and hide the car. Jay is a prosecutor's dream in the fact that there's an actual witness that participated in the disposal of the body after a crime. It should be an open and shut case. So why is there all this mystery surrounding Jay? One thing that I think everyone on all sides of this argument can agree about is the fact that Jay lies. There's no disputing the fact that he's told at least seven or I think it's up to eight now versions of how things went down on that day. Some believe he was confused. 
Others believe he was lying to minimize his involvement. Some believe that he lied to protect someone. Some people even think that he smoked so much weed he just had memory problems. And many people believe that his testimony and all the lies are the result of police coercion. And more than just coercion, a theory that seems to be gaining a lot of ground lately is that the police straight up fed Jay the story and told him what to say. That they threatened him with charging him with murder if he didn't cooperate, and they told him every word to say in his testimony. And the reason I want to talk about this today is because we've been investigating a lot of other angles in this case. We've talked a little bit about a possible serial killer, some unnamed third party. We did an episode on Roy Sharoni Davis, and lately we've been focusing a lot on Don. We've had the assistance of Jim Clemente, renowned FBI profiler. He generated a preliminary profile for us, and he's currently looking into the post-offense behavior of Adnan, Don, and Jay. We had Michael Wood on talking to us about how things worked in Baltimore, and he gave us his opinion of how he thinks things may have transpired. We've done all this work, and we began narrowing down our investigation, and we have someone that at the moment seems like they're a decent suspect. Fit the profile, alibi issues, several circumstantial things surrounding them have caused me to want to take a closer look. We spent an episode a couple of weeks ago exploring the alibis of Adnan and Don, and that was when it really occurred to me that there's no case against Adnan. You can argue one way or the other about how solid his alibi is or isn't, and I can certainly see both sides of that argument, but the fact is that no one's saying Adnan did this. No one had any indication that he did it. All of his friends say that he was fine with the breakup, that he and Hay were still friends. Hay's diary indicated the same thing. After the breakup, we know that she called Adnan to come out and give her a ride when she got in her car accident. On another occasion, she gave Adnan a ride to go pick up his car from Sears. They'd been broke up for around a month, and they were obviously still friends. Adnan was aware of Don since before Christmas, and most importantly, no one saw Adnan anywhere near Hay the day of her murder. But then there's Jay. If Jay's telling the truth, then Asia's lying or misremembering, and Debbie is lying or misremembering, and Coach Sai would have to be lying. I won't even say that he could be misremembering because his statement and recollection of that day are very solid. They're tied into that specific weather event, and his memory could only have come from January 13th. But the problem with Coach Sai's alibi is that even with that, if we don't believe Asia, and we don't believe Debbie, and we believe that Adnan managed to get into Hay's car without anyone seeing him, the state's narrative could still work, and Adnan could have been at track practice. There's debate on whether track practice started at 3.30 or 4 o'clock. There are students that say it started at 3.30. In the notes from Coach Sai's original interview, it seems to be noted that it started at 3.30, but later he said that he thinks it started at 4. So I haven't addressed the start time of track practice yet because I don't have the answer to that. I think most likely it did start at 3.30, but I'll certainly concede the fact that that is still up for debate. It could have been 4 o'clock. And so we're left with Jay versus Asia, Debbie, and all the other students that were around Hay after school. We know that Jay lies, but we don't know why. I've been on record on this show saying that I personally believe that Jay was threatened, scared, and was fed a narrative by Ritza McGillivary, and he recited it as they told him to in order to avoid being charged with murder. However, up to that point, I had only read Jay's interviews. I hadn't listened to them. After listening to both of Jay's interviews, along with Jen Pusateri's interview, I've came to the conclusion that I think I was wrong. 
I don't think that Ritz and McGillivary fed Jay this narrative in the way that I supposed. I absolutely believe that Jay was coerced, but in a different way. When I listened to Jay giving his statements, I noticed that very often in his interviews, he sounds scared, genuinely afraid. I tried to listen to these interviews with unbiased ears. It's really easy to let confirmation bias set in when you have a theory on the case and you project that theory onto everything you're reading and hearing. So I tried not to do that here and listen with a blank slate. I took pages of notes from both interviews and the trial transcripts and compared all the inconsistencies in Jay's story. But the first thing that caught my attention and caused me to consider the fact that it may not be very likely that Ritz and McGillivary directly told Jay what to say. And that was the couple of occasions towards the end of Jay's interviews where he says that he's been as truthful as he possibly can. He does it a couple of times, but this is one of the examples. All right, uh, I believe that concludes this interview. Uh, at this I've point. been as honest as I possibly can remember to you. I mean, truthfully honest. Okay. And what occurred to me when I heard these exchanges is, I could see Ritz and McGillivary being decent actors in this regard. They're seasoned detectives, they've worked no doubt hundreds of cases, and if they had fed Jay a script, I have no doubt that they would have had the ability to pretend to be surprised by answers, or to pretend to be grilling Jay. But what I realized is, Jay would not have that ability. Throughout these entire interviews, there are moments when Jay is scared, where Jay's flustered, where he's changing his story in mid-sentence. And in order to believe that he was completely fed a story, I feel like I would have to believe that Jay was an amazing actor. And I just don't think that he was. In listening to those interviews, those taps that Susan Simpson found are absolutely there on several occasions. It's clear that the detectives are tapping on some sort of timeline or some sort of notes to jog Jay's memory and get him back on track. But at the end of those interviews, Jay makes these qualifying statements. They point out that his stories have been inconsistent. They ask if he's telling the truth now. He says, yes, to the best of my recollection, this story is accurate, basically. In that exchange that I just played for you, Jay then interrupts again and qualifies his statements to the detectives again. To me, what it sounds like Jay's trying to do here is leave himself a way out. He's setting himself up so that if new evidence is uncovered that contradicts his statement, he can back out of the statement and change his story to fit the evidence because he already said, that was just the best I could remember right then. Anyone who's ever been trained in any kind of interrogation, or for that matter, anyone who has children, knows that this is a classic tell that someone is lying. It's not an effective technique. It doesn't work. But in the suspect's mind, they've left themselves that way out by qualifying their statements. The problem that we have here is, Ritz and McGillivary never cared if Jay was lying. I believe wholeheartedly that they knew that his story was complete BS. They just didn't care. They wanted their clearance. And he was giving it to them. So Jay's lying. But what is he lying about? When you're interviewing someone who actually participated in a crime or legitimately knows what happened in a crime, it's definitely not out of the ordinary for them to lie to you. In fact, it's almost expected. But the difference between Jay's statements and a normal witness statement who's lying is that there's no purpose behind Jay's lies. 
Jay gives at least four different locations for where the trunk pop occurred. Why would he change that detail? It's not to minimize his involvement. It's not to protect someone. There's literally no purpose in the changes. Jay says now in his intercept interview that he lied about where it happened in order to protect his grandmother because the trunk pop actually happened at his grandmother's house. But if that was the case, why change it three or four other times? Any of those locations didn't involve grandma's house. So why keep making the changes? They don't make sense. One possibility is that he doesn't remember, but that doesn't make sense either. You don't forget the place you were when you saw the body of an 18-year-old girl in a trunk. That's a situation that you will never forget. And yet Jay can't seem to keep it straight. Jay gives a couple of different versions of where they dump the shovels. Again, this is not a detail that you would forget. And there's no utility in the lie. What's the difference between dumping them at Westview Mall as opposed to Security Square Mall? There isn't any. What's the difference in the location of where you dumped your clothes from the crime? At this point, Jay has already admitted his involvement. So even if you would say that he was changing the location because he was afraid that the police might actually find the clothes, it doesn't matter. He already said that he helped bury the body. And yet he can't remember which dumpster he put them in. He can't even remember when he disposed of them. In some versions of the story, he bagged up his clothes and dumped them the night of the murder. In other versions, he didn't do it until the next day. Sometimes he didn't get rid of the boots until the next day, but the clothes the night before. Sometimes they were thrown in the dumpster outside of his house. Sometimes they were thrown in a dumpster at Westview Mall. Sometimes they were thrown in a dumpster behind Value City. These are little details that don't matter. The only thing that matters legally is whether or not Jay was involved, which he had already admitted that he was. Jay's and Jen's stories don't line up. Jay says that Jen picked him up at his house. Jen says she picked him up at Security Square Mall. Later, Jay changes and says she did pick him up at a mall, but he says Westview Mall. And again, what is the utility behind this lie? And again, there isn't one. It's not to protect Jen. She's already said that she helped dispose of the shovels and also picked him up to help him get rid of the clothes. So why change the location of where these things were disposed of? There is no purposeful explanation as to why Jay told these lies, why he was so inconsistent about them. My theory? Jay wasn't lying. He wasn't reading off a changing script presented by the police. I believe what happened is Jay's entire confession was a lie. All of it. And in his subsequent interviews, he couldn't remember his lies. Jay wasn't lying when he changed his story. He just couldn't remember the first lie that he told. You don't have this kind of inconsistencies with the truth. Especially when these details are tied into such a memorable event as participating in the cover-up of a murder. But when people lie, they tend to give too many details. They incorrectly believe that by giving more details, their story will be more believable. But the problem in doing that is that you have to remember all of those details. And you have nothing to tie them to because they're not real memories. They were fabrications, things you thought up on the fly when you said them. And two weeks later, you might remember that you said you got rid of your clothes, but you can't remember where you said you got rid of them or when you said you got rid of them. So by my analysis, and you can take it or leave it, Jay didn't do any of these things. When he's being interviewed, he's scared. 
He's trying to tell the detectives what they want to hear. Like I mentioned before, anyone who has any sort of training in interrogation knows these classic telltale signs that someone is lying. Inconsistency in details with no utility. Qualifying your statements. It's all a lie. And it wasn't a story that Jay was told to tell by Ritz and McGillivary. These guys are seasoned detectives. If they were going to generate a completely made-up narrative in order to get a clearance, the narrative would have actually matched the evidence. The narrative would have made sense, and there wouldn't be all these inconsistencies. Ritz and McGillivary didn't make up this narrative. Jay did. But why? You've already heard the answer to that right here on this show. See, I've never claimed to be the brightest guy in the world, but I'm smart enough to know that there are people out there that are much smarter than me. That's why we've had the guests that we've had over the last several weeks. And one of those guests was Jim Trainum. Trainum talked to us about false confessions and how they happen. And the fact is that they happen all the time. In fact, Jim's expertise on the subject began when he obtained a false confession of his own. When he appeared on the This American Life Confessions episode, he told the story of his false confession. He and his partner interrogated this girl for hours. They applied some of the techniques like the read technique that he spoke of on this show. And eventually, she not only confessed, but she gave them details of the crime. There were elements of her statement that she could have only known if she had been there. But what Jim realized after the fact, after it was proven that this woman did not commit this crime, was that he had given her all of this information. During the pre-interview and early stages of the interview, a tactic that is used by many detectives is to show photos of the crime scene to the suspect. In layman's term, when a team is playing good cop, bad cop, the bad cop will often put pictures down of the victim, pictures down of the crime scene in the car, and accuse the suspect. Do you remember when you did this? Do you remember when you were walking through the woods? You remember when you were digging this hole, you were probably sitting on that tree, things along those lines. They're trying to get a response out of the suspect. They're watching for how they react. They're analyzing their behavior, and they're trying to scare them into confessing. And what happens many times in these false confessions is that the police have given the suspect all of the information they need to generate their own narrative. And some people will say that this is a ridiculous theory and it's a conspiracy theory, but the fact is that it's not. It's a fact. False confessions happen all the time. And when they happen, the person confessing usually has a complete narrative. I'll say they always have a complete narrative. Assuming that you have good and ethical police officers... When someone confesses to a crime, but they don't have the details about how the crime was committed, they know right away that the confession is false. So in order for most false confessions to fly, the suspect has to generate a narrative, and they usually do that by regurgitating the information that's been shown to them in the pre-interview in the early stages of the interview. In Jay's case, we know that there were several hours of pre-interview that were unrecorded. We also have evidence that the police had contact with him on at least two other occasions prior to this interview that weren't documented. And one of these occasions happened right outside of Jen Pusateri's house where he was seen in the back of a police car. Jay even says in his interview that he knows the police have been after him for days. And there's the weird situation with Jen where they approach her and then let her leave and then she makes contact the next morning and makes her statement. 
And we know there's a lot of oddities behind that as well with the whole lawyer and her mother meeting at the lawyer's house who lives in the same neighborhood as Ritz, which who knows what that means could mean nothing, but certainly odd. And there's no question that Jen and Jay talked before Jen's interview. She said it right in her interview. She said that Jay had told her to tell the police to go talk to him. So they had had time to corroborate a story together. I don't know for sure what's going on with Jen. To be honest, she is the one person that just absolutely boggles my mind. I can't make sense of her. Even if you believe her, her stories don't match Jay's story. But while I can't pretend to know the answer as to what Jen was doing, I can tell you with almost complete assurity that Jay Wilds was lying. Not one of his version of events is even possible. And the truth is, the state never had a case. There are very few things consistent across all of Jay's statements. But the one thing that Jay is consistent about is the fact that Anand did not call him to meet him at the scene of the murder until 3.40 p.m. In Jay's police statements, he says that Anand had told him to wait until 3.30 for the call to come get him. And in both statements, he said that he had waited around and waited around, and the call didn't come in until 3.40. He tells the detectives that it took him about 20 minutes to drive to the location where Adnan was. So by all accounts of the police, the trunk pop happened at about 4 o'clock, and the come and get me call occurred at 3.40. And Jay stayed consistent with this. At trial, Jay, the state's only witness to this crime, testified that the come-and-get-me call happened at 3.40. The problem is that the strongest leg of Anand's alibi was that Coach Sai says that he was at track practice on time on January 13th, walking the track with him, talking about prayers he would be leading at the mosque. If Anand was at track practice, whether track practice started at 3.30 or 4 o'clock, it is not possible for him to have called Jay at 3.40 and have Jay come meet him, do the trunk pop, park the car, even if he immediately returned Adnan back to track practice, he still would not be on time. He would be noticeably late. And this is what I meant at the beginning of the episode when I talked about how Christina Gutierrez failed Adnan and the state had no case. In closing, Prosecutor Murphy told the jury that by 2.36 p.m., Hay was dead and they corroborated that with the phone records from when Adnan supposedly called Jay to come and get him from Best Buy at 2.36. They've even stated in more recent briefs that if Asia's alibi holds up, they could always change the come-and-get-me call time to the 3.15 call. The problem is there is zero evidence, nothing, that says that that call happened at 2.36 or 3.15 p.m. The only witness to testify about that call consistently has stated that it occurred at 340. And that is what he testified to at trial. The 236 or 315 come and get me call narrative was 100% completely fabricated by the prosecution. No one said that that's when it happened. And Gutierrez missed it. And now thanks to Undisclosed, we know why she missed it. To say that Anand Syed should have never been convicted is an understatement. The fact is that the state had no case against him. 
They had one witness that claimed that Adnan murdered her and called him to pick her up at a time that it was impossible for him to do so, and also at a time where there is no incoming call on the call log to corroborate that testimony. Jay's statement, Jay's confession, is false. My theory as to what happened? Ritz and McGillivary bullied Jay for hours. They threatened to charge him with murder. They threatened him with the death penalty. They made him believe that the only way to save his own life was to give the detectives a narrative that would get them an arrest. During that pre-interview time, they showed him pictures of the crime scene. They gave him the few details that they had. And when Jay felt like he had no other choice, he spun up a story full of details that he couldn't remember. And much like we've done with several other witness statements, I want you to hear what Jay thought happened before these detectives began manipulating him. During the pre-interview, you said uh, maybe you want to try her new boyfriend that she may be with him. Yes. Jay's first statement to the police before he, quote, came clean, was that he thought that Don had something to do with it. And somehow, hours later, Ritz and McGillivary got Jay to confess to a crime that he didn't commit. And several months later, Adnan Syed was convicted of murder because of the incompetence of a once-renowned defense attorney. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. And don't forget that if you're interested in getting involved in a fitness group to check out Becky's Faith and Fitness on Facebook. And as always, thank you to all of you listeners for your participation in the show and all of your thoughts, theories, and ideas that you've been emailing in to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can look me up on Facebook to search for Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. And there are always daily discussions going on on Twitter. And the show's Twitter handle is at TruthJusticePod. As for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.